begin reading in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, and we'll read through to the end of, to, of verse 21, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into this text this morning, this command to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. So let's read this together. This is the Word of God. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we delight in you this day. We are grateful. Lord, for... Your great mercy and grace. We're grateful to You, Heavenly Father, for You sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, to live a life of utter perfection in our stead. To endure, Father, the wages of sin in our place on the cross to rise from the dead three days later and to give to us the righteousness and the forgiveness which we need in order to be accepted by You and to stand before You on the day of judgment and be ushered into the kingdom of the eternal God. And thank You, Lord God, that the work of salvation that Christ accomplished Father, was not just to save us from the penalty of sin, but to save us from the dominion of sin in our lives right now. To save us, Lord God, from a lifestyle of sin. To save us, Lord God, from submission to sin. And to walk in the newness of life. And so as we approach these commands that You give to us. Words that we are to hear and to obey. Words that are for our good. Words that are for our sanctification. I pray, Lord God, that we would have hearts together to receive them. And Lord, that there would be an earnest desire in our hearts to do them. That these commands would not sound foreign to our ears, but 
Lord God, that we would hear them and say yes and amen and of course. In order for that to happen, Lord God, we need the empowering you know, activity of Your Holy Spirit in each of our lives. So I pray that You would move, Lord God, through the preaching of Your Word, especially for those in this room that belong to You, Father, to sanctify us, to remove excuses, to take away reasons for why, Lord, we, we don't do what we know in our hearts we ought to do and what You have given us in Your Spirit the very power to do. Help us to desire in every way to be more and more sanctified, more and more, more conformed to the image of our Savior every single day. And Lord, as I preach these words, I pray that You would fill me with the Holy Spirit and You would empty me of myself. And You would empty me, Lord God, of, of the, 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 the fleshly desire, Lord God, and the fleshly sort of fear and the fleshly you know, inclination to... To, to have to turn phrases in a certain way or to make the Word of God, you know, interesting or any of those things, Lord God, that, 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 that the flesh just whispers all the time. Instead, make me just faithful to Your Word, to preach it accurately, to preach it in accordance with Your truth. Lord God, to, to, to just to be under Your direction, under you know, Your leadership. And I pray, Father, that You would move in the hearts of those that are in this room. That God, we would, all of us, be freshly affected by your truth. You are worthy to be praised. We give you all glory. Give you all honor. To you be, be just all worship now and forever. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I was thinking about it this week, beloved. How... You know, the way that we've been taking our time going through this text. You know, going through especially Romans chapter 12 and starting with verse 9. And I was thinking that probably we haven't done this since, you know, gone this sort of uh, measured and, and deliberately. We haven't done this probably since I preached through the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I wanted to just talk for a few moments about why it is that we're taking such a, quote, leisurely pace through Romans chapter 12 and starting in verse 9. And here's why. I want us to see that these commands and these exhortations, right? They are essential characteristics of the follower of Christ. They are to be elemental marks of a genuine faith and how we as Christians are to live in order that we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, as Paul put it in Titus chapter 2. That word adorn is a word that means to beautify. It's a word that means to decorate. And the idea, beloved, is this, is that either our lives make the gospel attractive, or they undermine its message. In fact, Paul goes on to say, to Titus, in, in the very following verses, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Right? And what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 12 is he is showing us, at least in part, what these good works what the fruit of God's grace in our lives looks like. And so that's why we're taking this slow and measured approach to these commands that we see in Romans chapter 12. These commands, these exhortations are worthy, beloved, of more than just a brief reading or a superficial acknowledgement. They're worth more than just reading it and and just moving on to the next verse because I need to get my daily quotient of Scripture read. They deserve our serious contemplation. They deserve our active application of these words to our lives, both individually and together, right? And we're taking these, you know, sort of piece by piece, So that we get the heart of what the Spirit of God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul. So now this morning, in our text, we are coming to this command to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And at first, you know, if we were to look at these and compare them, we might say, well, you know, this one, this one is, I don't know, you know, like we have this tendency to take the commands of God and sort of place them in a hierarchical fashion, don't we? Like this one's really important. This one's kind of important. This one's, you know, maybe even a little less important. We do that with the Ten Commandments, don't we? Don't we? No, we don't do that. Oh, yeah, we do. I'll tell you a perfect one. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. We're all about don't murder, right? If you're a parent with your kids, you're all about don't lie, right? How many of us are all about keep the Sabbath day holy? Not three out of four, not two out of four, but every one of them. How many of us? Are like that, right? And we do that with these commands we read here. Surely we look at this and we go, well, you know, let love to be genuine, abhor what's evil, hold fast to what is good. That's probably more important than, than, you know, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But it's not true. Because every one of these commands, again, explains to us what it looks like to live like Christ in this fallen world. So when we come to this verse, right? universally, almost universally, commentators agree that Paul is shifting back from, you know, dealing with the world now again to dealing with the community of faith, right? To our relationship with our fellow Christians, okay? And he tells us that we are to to identify with other believers in their joys and in their sorrows in an appropriate way so that we demonstrate... You know, the reality and the sincerity of brotherly affection. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we're to weep with those who weep, and there are extremes that are given to us, and that means we're to, we're to rejoice and we're to weep when everything else is in between. But these commands, all of these commands, again, they're not detached from the gospel. All of these commands are not just like, you know, a, a collection of ideas that Paul thinks are good, 
you know, they are intrinsically connected to the Scripture. They are built on a doctrinal foundation. They don't just come out of nowhere, okay? There's a reason these commands are given to us as believers. It's because there are some doctrinal truths that are, that are some doctrinal, you know, uh, instruction that form the foundation of these commands. Well, what do I mean by that? Let me explain, okay? Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Like, if you read these commands and these exhortations in Romans 12, you ought to come to the quick realization that they're really impossible to obey from the heart apart from being born again. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? I mean, look, without the regenerating and the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, there's no way for us to actually keep these commands from the heart. And you know what? Paul has already talked to us about that. That's an intrinsic part of the gospel, right? He's already talked about it. He's referred, for instance, to the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. He's talked about walking according to the Spirit. He's talked about being led by the Spirit. He's talked about a mind set on the Spirit. But specifically, Paul talks about the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit when he describes for us the five golden links of salvation in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Doesn't he? When he says there, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? Effectual calling by the Holy Spirit unto life in Christ is essential to saving faith And it is essential to the power to obey these commands that we've been given. You with me? Right? It's through the preaching of the Word of God. And again, Paul's already told us this. It's through the preaching of the Word of God. And by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that sinners receive new life and are born from above. We're called out of darkness. We're called out of blindness to our sin. Our blinded eyes are opened. Our deaf ears get unstopped. We are given the grace to spiritually and savingly understand the truth of the gospel. That's not something we work up. That's something the Spirit of God gives to us, praise God. He opens our eyes, right? He he makes our, our wills to be renewed. So that we hear the gospel... And we are made willing to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And He creates within our hearts the very faith by which we freely and fully lay hold of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Right? He makes us to be born above. Born by the power of the living God. Delivered from hatred and apathy toward God to fervent love for our Savior. And we would never... We would never come to Christ on our own, nor could we obey His commands from the heart except we be regenerated and rescued by the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's fact. Neither the command to obey the Gospel nor the commands that Paul gives us here can be obeyed apart from a true heart change wrought by the Holy Spirit. You might try to do some of these things externally. You may attempt to put some of these truths on externally. And certainly, there are people that are in the flesh that do not know Christ that might try to live an outwardly moral life. But outward morality and righteousness from the heart are not the same thing. One is an affectation. Put on. Informed by 
the dominant morality of the culture, and the other is intrinsic. It is implanted in our hearts by the Spirit of God when He writes the law of God on them. And so therefore we live out of that intrinsically different new life, right? With me? If we're Christians, we've been born again. We've got a new divine nature. We have the life of God in the soul of man. And because the Holy Spirit indwells us permanently, and because He actively teaches and guides and empowers us, what God commands we're now able to do by grace. So, the first part of the doctrinal foundation for these commands that are given to us is that the Holy Spirit of God has made us to be new creatures, right? The second thing is this. These commands are also founded on the doctrinal truth that justification must lead to sanctification, right? In other words, being declared not guilty and righteous before Almighty God must then lead to a life of growing holiness and growing conformity to Jesus, right? Right? That is orthodox Christianity, Okay, that's orthodox Christianity. If that's coming as a surprise to you, that that there should actually be a transformation in my life as a result of being justified by, by the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's coming as a surprise to you, I just want you to know, that's orthodox Christianity. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay? And again, Paul has already established this in Romans, right? Of course, we've got to be justified, right? That's the initial thing we need. The initial, you know, rescue of the gospel. We've got to be justified. We've got to be declared not guilty and righteous in God's eyes. Because that's an absolute impossibility for us to do in our own power. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Christ has got to be our Savior and our Lord. He's got to be our Redeemer. He's got to be the one to justify us before God by grace through faith in Him. And Romans 3 makes that so clear, doesn't it? Think about what we were. We were lost and we were hopeless in sin. We were guilty of rebellion against God who is three times holy, right? The God who is too holy then to to look upon sin with approval. Like, none of us was righteous. Not one of us sought for God. All of us had made ourselves worthless. None of us did good. We had no fear of God before our eyes. Even though, you know what, we were justly under His wrath. How ultimately blind were we? Our every sin against God was a capital offense. Our every sin against God was a capital offense. And because God's infinitely holy, the only fitting punishment for our sin was eternal punishment in hell, right? We had no hope. We had no hope but the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Romans 3, 24 and 25, right? Right? Christ has to bear our wrath that we deserve. And that's exactly what He did when He stood in our place and He substituted His life for ours. And He took on Himself the penalty of of our sin and He paid a debt that He didn't owe. Rather, He paid the debt that we owe. In His death, He endured the wrath of God against sin. He experienced the full fury of hell. And in so doing, He completely satisfied the holiness of God by absorbing God's wrath against sin and diverting that wrath once and for all away from us who have received Christ Jesus as Lord. Praise God for that glorious gift, right? But not only has Christ saved us from sin, and not only has He saved us 
from the penalty that we deserve. He's done more. He's done more. Don't truncate the gospel. He's done more. He's also saved us from the dominion of sin in our lives. Has He not? Has He not? He has. He saved us from the dominion of sin in our lives. What does that mean? That means this. If you are giving yourself to sin, it's not because you're powerless to resist it. It's because that's what you want to do. If you're truly born again and you've really been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God dwells within you, you have everything you need to resist the dominion of sin in your life and to pursue righteousness. Isn't that true? Look, Paul wrote Romans 6, 6, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We're saved from slavery to sin. We're raised to walk in the newness of life. The Lord Jesus Christ has saved us for a life of growing unto a life, of growing conformity to His character, to true godliness. And these commands, they outline what that looks like. Some of it. They give some description of what that looks like. These commands in the Word of God are the means by which we are transformed through the renewal of our minds so that we can discern and live according to the good and acceptable perfect will of God. God sanctifies us by His Spirit and His Word. Right? And so when we hear these words, if we're truly in Christ, we go, yes, amen. Right? We want to do these things. And as the Apostle John writes, you know, it's the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. We don't keep God's commands out of burdensome duty. We don't read this list in Romans chapter 12 and start in verse 9 and go, Oh man! At least we shouldn't. We keep His commands because of love and because we desire to do so. If that's not your motivation, you need to check yourself. You need to really examine yourself. If you, if you hear these commands here and you're trying to obey them in order to earn merit with God or, or you're trying to obey them in order to keep God from disciplining you or you're trying to obey these because you don't want the hand of God in judgment. If that's the main motivation, man, you're missing it. The main motivation to obedience to the commands of God for somebody who's been born again ought to be love for the God who has saved him. Right? Keep these commands, not out of burdensome duty, but because of love and because we want to. There's an intrinsic must, this must of, of love and devotion in our souls. That's the second part of the foundation. So we've got to be born again, right? That's part of it. And then we've got to be justified under sanctification, right? And then here's the third thing. These commands demand of us, especially the ones that deal specifically with the body of Christ. They demand that we see the church for what it really is. Can I tell you what one of the biggest problems of the modern church movement today is, is that the modern church movement sees themselves as an entertainment venue rather than the family of God. The focus is on the experience. You know, getting people to come in and experience something, whatever it is, right? Well, a great multimedia presentation or a really rocking band or a cool preacher that, you know, doesn't really command any authority from the Word of God, but just gives you some helpful suggestions for a better life. And a congregation 
that is just expected to show up and leave on time and, and tip them with the appropriate amount in the plates on their way out. And so what you end up with is a church that's a lot like a movie theater. Like I've never gone to a movie theater and experienced great fellowship with the people that were in the room with me. Have you? Have you? Look, I've never been in there and been like, I just feel like a family. This is great. It's one of the great problems with the modern church movement. You know, I forget who it was that was talking about how they compared it. But they were saying, you know, the modern church movement is kind of like a bag of marbles. You know, like the marbles, think of the marbles as the people in church. And they just are kind of in the bag together. The only real noise you hear from them is they're clacking against one another, right? Resisting one another. He said, but the real picture of a church would be like a bag of grapes. It's kind of squished together. And the juice is kind of flowing out and, and their lives mingled together with one another, right? And in order to obey these commands, we need to see the church in the way that Paul described it, right? You remember how he did. That we are united to one another as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are members one with another in the body of Christ. Christ is our elder brother, right? God is our Father. And we are inseparably joined together through the unifying work of the Holy Spirit, right? And so because that's true, there ought to be a distinctive way in which we live together as the people of God, as the children of God. The church is not an organization. It's not an entertainment venue. It's not an institution. It is a family. Paul calls it the household of faith. It's the body of Christ. And listen, we are united to one another. We need to live like it, right? So there's the foundation for these commands, the foundation specifically for this command that we're going to look at. We need to be born again, right? And, and, and Paul says, Paul's already described that. We need to be justified through faith in Christ unto sanctification. He's already described that. And then we need to have a proper view of who we are as the family of God. That's the doctrinal foundation for all of these instructions from Paul, but specifically for this one that we're looking at this morning. And again, because this is so, because this is rooted in truth, scriptural truth, Romans 12 is not, you know, the, the commands there are not mere behavior modification and they're not spurious and they're not inconsequential. They've been given to us to, to make us more into the image of Christ our Lord. They're given to us for our good. And, and so that our church might look like it ought to look and function as it ought to function. Right? These commandments are good and they proceed from sound doctrine and divine truth. Alright? You with me so far? Alright, so let's look at this, the heart and the challenge of, of this command this morning, of rejoicing and weeping. Alright? To get to the heart of this command, we really got to understand what Paul is saying here. And it's, listen, it's not rocket science. Just look at verse 15 again. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now guess what? There's no hidden Greek meaning here. Okay? There's no sneaky decoder ring, you know, what does this mean? This is, this is very simple. It's, 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 it's not difficult to understand intellectually. Here's what Paul is saying. Very simple. He says, look, as the people of God, as the body of Christ, we are to share in the happiness and the joy 
of our brother and our sister in Christ. We're to celebrate with them when they have received some particular blessing from God. We are to rejoice with them when they have received some manifestation of His grace. When they've received some good and perfect gift from above that comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning, we ought to be the first ones in line to celebrate with them, to rejoice with them, to exalt with them, to praise God with them, right? That should be the motivation of our hearts. We're to celebrate and rejoice with them. Why? Why? Because that's what families do, right? And then, conversely, he says, we're to weep with those who weep. And the word for weep here is a very strong word. It doesn't mean to just sit silently by and hang your head. The word for weep here means to cry, to shed tears, to lament, to feel deeply. He's saying that we're to sincerely enter into one another's pain as much as we can. That we are to to enter into the sorrows and the hurts and the pains and the trials that each one of us experiences. Instead of remaining distant, we sympathize. We cry, we comfort, we listen, we pray, we speak words of life and hope from the Scriptures, and we seek to be a help and a support to our brothers and sisters who are in sorrow. So there's this wonderful extreme here, right? There's this rejoicing and exalting and praising God and just thanking the Lord for His goodness. As if that blessing is your own. As if you personally received it. Because your brother or your sister in Christ has received it. You know what? You, you're just, you're overwhelmed with joy for them. And then there's the other extreme of grief. Deep grief and sorrow. And we're to enter into that too. We're going to enter into that also. And He gives us these two extremes to say and everything else in between as well. There's a wonderful symmetry to these commands. And I want you to see it. And there's a divine purpose in them. You know what? Rejoicing begets greater rejoicing, doesn't it? Doesn't it? When somebody's excited, what happens? If you get excited with them, right? It's like a popcorn effect, isn't it? And people are more and more rejoicing. There's more and more celebration, right? There's this stirring up of our souls as we recount the blessings of God, as we celebrate the faithfulness and the goodness of God in heaven, right? We praise God for all the good things in life and for the manifestations of His grace. It's infectious, isn't it? And weeping with one another sympathizing in the hard things of life. While it can't take away the source of that sorrow, right? It can't, we just can't remove the source of that sorrow. What it does do is impart comfort to our souls and it brings some sense of relief, doesn't it? To the pressure and the weight of that suffering. You don't really know how to explain how that works, but, but there's this sharing in the pain and the hurt that acts as a balm to the hurting soul. Where we, when we bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. 
So what's Paul getting at here? What's he saying to us when he's giving us this command? Like, what's, the, what's behind it? Well, what he's getting at is this. Is that our hearts and lives, beloved, as the people of God, as the family of God, they need to be open to and invested in one another in such a way that there should be a true closeness and a folding of our lives into one another. We shouldn't be strangers. We shouldn't be marbles clacking around in the bag. There ought to be a real closeness. You know, what we call doing life together. That's what that means. Doing life together just doesn't mean going to the same church on Sundays or going to the same church on Wednesdays or going to the same Sunday school or whatever. Like, that's not doing life together. That's going to church together. Are you with me? Doing life together is more than that. It's the investment of our lives in one another. From joy to sorrow to everything in between, right? Because participating with one another in life, in each other's lives, whether it's rejoicing or whether it's weeping or, or whether it's anything in between, the point is, is that those things have a power to cement our hearts to one another in the bond of mutual and real brotherly love in a way that is beyond full description. And in fact, you've got to experience it to really understand it. But it ought to be the common practice. It ought to be the warp and the woof of of the lives of the people of God. Because rejoicing and weeping together is an indisputable evidence of the work of the gospel in our hearts, isn't it? It's an indisputable evidence of brotherly affection and it defines our fellowship. I hesitate to give this illustration because it involves me, but I want to give it to you because I think it will help you. Not long before, you know, the crash that our family, you know, the sorrow that our family experienced with that. Not long before that, Dr. Mark Taylor, Dr. Mark was losing his wife, Judy. And he was grieving, as any loving husband would. And as his brother, as his pastor, my heart was to weep with him. And it was to pray with him, it was to share Scripture with him, it was to try to encourage him in some way, right? And it was a difficult time. Very difficult time. And though I couldn't feel the grief as deeply as he did, I felt grieved for him, right? And only a few months... After Judy went to be with Christ. Then we were faced with the accident, right? And John is in critical condition. And we don't know what's going to happen. And we are grieving deeply. And he comes home from the hospital after four days, which is not normal for the injuries that he had. But our concern was, if we left him in the hospital, that he may not recover. Because we couldn't see him. We couldn't be with him. He couldn't have his people around him. And you know John is a people animal, right? And this brother that I tried to minister to months earlier and was praying with and still encouraging, and you know, dropped everything. And said, we're going to bring him home. And I'm going to take care of him right here. I should have built on an extra room for him. He was there so much. 
But He entered with us into that grief. And I can't stand up here and say how my ministering to Him helped Him, but I can tell you this. His ministering to us, I can tell you that it did indeed remove much of the pressure and the weight and the heaviness and just the fear of the unknown that we were facing. We might read, you know, a a command like this, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep and think it's not very important. It is. It is. It's that kind of thing that defines our fellowship. Or should. I want you to think about it like this. You know, think of, think of everything that makes for distinctions among men. You know, think about the stuff we're continually dividing over. Right? Things like class and ethnicity and, and earthly lineage and education and profession and outcomes and looks and physical abilities and mental abilities... All of that stuff is of no consequence before God. It is all done away with in the family of God. And why? Because we're sinners saved by grace, every one of us. The dividing walls have been broken down by the power of the gospel. And our identity is found in the Lord Jesus Christ together. God has placed us in His family with brothers and sisters that we love. And so rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep should just make sense to us because we're united together in a common life. In other words, here's the point, right? This command proceeds from a deep sense that we are one together. That my life is woven into your life and your life is woven into my life and everyone else that's in Christ. And so what you experience, the joys and the heartaches, I experience with you and vice versa, right? And so rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep and everything in between, we do it not because we have to. We do it Because we have to. Do you know the difference? Because we're so joined together to one another in Christ that to do otherwise would be unthinkable. In fact, Paul brings these two things together so well when he says in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 12, verse 26, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. If we're truly Christians, we, we can't live independent isolated lives. Love that's genuine is not going to respond to a fellow believer's joy with envy or bitterness. Instead, it's going to enter in wholeheartedly to that same joy. And similarly, love that is genuine won't allow us to be indifferent when a brother or sister is hurting. But you will so identify intimately and, and with them, so identify so intimately with them that their sorrows become your own. That's the church at its best, isn't it? And it's exceedingly opposite of the way of the world, is it not? I mean, this is the ideal that we're to pursue. And it dramatically sets the church apart from the world of fallen men and women. How so? Well, just think about the command to rejoice. I'm just going to speak plainly here. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I'm just going to be direct with you. Okay? Here's the worldly response to other people's rejoicing. You know what it is. What is the worldly response to somebody having some good break, quote-unquote, come their way? You know what it is. The first response is jealousy and envy, isn't it? Isn't it? Maybe you, you voice how, you know, 
I, I really deserve that more than they did. Or you, or you look at it and you say, oh, I, I don't know, I don't know how they're going to handle such a blessing like that. I don't know what they're going to do with that. You know, I'm a little concerned with what they might do with what they've just been received, what they've just received. Right? Trying to sound all, you know, holy and concerned and pious. That's the way you, people usually respond to someone rejoicing, and especially if that blessing and happiness seems to come at their expense. At best, the world's re, you know, response to rejoicing is often external and outward, isn't it? While inside they're filled with resentment somehow that they have lost out or been ripped off. And so they'll rejoice, but they'll do it through gritted teeth. Right? Outwardly a smile and a nod. Inwardly great jealousy and envy and upset. But they'll look good on the outside because to give voice to their misgivings would be bad form. Right? And then think about how the world responds to to weeping. To those who suffer some hardship or trial or difficulty, right? The worldly response to those who weep many times is one of superficiality, isn't it? They're like the wailing women back in the Jewish times, right? Where they, where they, you know, they respond to, to a situation not with real heartfelt weeping and deep feeling with one another, but with a necessary outward show, right? I need to outwardly show my solidarity in, in some way, right? Sometimes the response to someone suffering is just stoicism or indifference. My least favorite one is the people that, you know, see you suffering and come alongside of you and say, oh, I know it's really bad for you, but you know, I had a lot worse not so long ago when blah, blah, blah. Don't you just want to punch those people? Oops, I'm sorry. Bless those who persecute you. But they're annoying. Those people are annoying. Sometimes, you know, inwardly there's this hypercritical spirit. When someone really weeps, you know, when someone's really hurt, when someone's really like struggling, there's this, this, this hypercritical sense in our hearts sometimes that that emotion's excessive or it's just too much or they really need to learn how to control themselves. Right? There's even people that rejoice at someone's calamity. Or at least are just glad that it didn't happen to them. Or who inwardly puff themselves up by saying, you know, I could see that one coming from a mile away. Now probably all of us at some time or another have responded in those worldly kinds of ways, haven't we? And I'm not saying that the response of the world is always this extreme, but the plain fact of the matter is that for natural fallen men and women, rejoicing or weeping with one another is always marred by sin. Always. Because we live in a callous and an indifferent and in a hate-filled world. And if we're honest, like I just said, we've responded sometimes in ways like this. And that's why it's distinctively Christian to rejoice in the blessing and the honor and the welfare of others. And it's distinctively Christian to be sympathetic to the disappointments and hardships and sorrows of others and weep with them. Because to do so, the reason it's distinctively Christian is because to do so, both of those things require selflessness and self-denial, don't they? So what does this mean? Beloved, here's what it means. That 
to truly fulfill this command from the heart means that we're going to need to put to death the natural and sinful desires that still remain in us. Those remnants of our old sinful nature that war against this kind of unity and investment in and love for one another. So what are those things that we need to be on guard for, on the lookout for, and take take hold of and put to death by the Word of God and the power of the Spirit? What are they? Well, they're probably innumerable. But let me just give you a few of them. One of them... One of the things that we need to put to death once and for all is self-absorption. You know, that that kind of of being so self-consumed and self-oriented that what happens in the hearts and lives of other people has no effect on us. It leads to a shrunken life, right? A sucked-in life. We need to put that to death. Another is self-protection. Some of us are masters of self-protection. You know, we, 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 we try to give away of ourselves only so much to a point. Because we don't want to take risks. Because, you know, we're trying to protect ourselves from the highs and the lows of life. And we want to protect ourselves from becoming too exposed so we don't feel too much. Some of us need to battle with a stoicism in the lack of a perceptible emotional life that's often because of some traumatic experience or from a developed callousness, you know, from the difficulties of life or maybe your profession, you know. For others, it might be that we tell ourselves that we don't have time or we simply don't have an interest to be invested in others in that way because... We won't say it, but what, what we believe is that whatever is happening in my life is so much more significant or difficult than whatever is happening in somebody else's. And just for some of us, it may be just plain old indifference, envy, and jealousy, right? Whatever the issue is, the root's the same. It's selfism, isn't it? Isn't it? Martin Lloyd Jones says. A man or a woman of the world, the natural person, cannot carry out Paul's injunction, his command. There's only one way whereby it becomes possible, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And how does the Holy Spirit do it? Well, this is the glory of Christian salvation. The Holy Spirit deals with all that is involved in self and does this by means of the new birth And the new nature, the new birth, is the one thing that resolves the problem of self. Nothing else can do it. And that's why our gospel does not teach a modification of the self, but a doctrine of regeneration, of rebirth of the self, a new being, a new person. Only this gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord can ever deliver us from ourself and all that is involved in that horror. It works like this. We are not only delivered from self, we are also identified with others. And that's the marvelous thing. We become members of the same family. We belong to the same head. We belong to the same body. How do we weep with one another? And how do we rejoice with one another? By putting our self, our old self, to death. And by walking in the newness of life. 
Right? Christ, Christ, in Christ we're new creations. We are new people with new emotions, with new desires, with new orientations, right? And our new, new orientation is Christ and others first. Christ and others before ourselves. We're recreated to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul tells us over in Ephesians chapter 4 and starting in verse 22 that we are to put off our old self which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true holiness and true righteousness and holiness. Continually, we're to be putting off the things that belong to the old man. Continually, we're to be putting off the things that belong to our old life and we're to be continually renewing, being renewed in our minds through the Word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit to apply God's truth and His commands to our hearts and to our minds with power. We are to be continually desiring and longing and praying that we might reflect the likeness of God, that we might reflect Christ. And of course, in this command... Jesus Himself is our great example, right? Right? He's our example for all of these. He's our great example. For instance, think about it like this, as far as rejoicing is concerned. In Luke chapter 10, when Jesus was considering God's work of opening blinded eyes and the joy of the salvation of His people, here's what Luke recorded about the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In other words, he rejoiced with us in the joy of our salvation. Moreover, think about this. When Peter rightly confessed him, you know, he confessed Christ as, as the Son of the living God. Jesus wasn't stoic, was he? He didn't just stand there and say, yep, you got it right. Is that what he did? He didn't stand there and go, well, wasn't it obvious? No, what's he do? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, exclamation point. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He rejoiced with him. Conversely, when Jesus came to Mary and Martha after Lazarus was dead for four days, right? The Scripture tells us, John chapter 11, starting verse 33, that when Jesus saw her, saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. And He said, where have you laid Him? And they said to Him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, there's a couple of things that were at play in that moment. And I just want you to know these. I want you to see this. The word that was translated there, that's translated there as deeply moved, is a word that means to snort. Like a snort with indignation, right? Like a bull snorting when it's getting ready to drop its horns and come after you, right? It's the idea of the breaking up of your emotions, to be indignant. And then the words there, greatly troubled, is is the idea of being agitated and angry. So what we see here is that Jesus was agitated. He was angry. Well, why? Some gods say he's angry at the people. He wasn't angry at the people. That's a wrong perspective. He was not angry at the people. Jesus was not angry with those who were standing around, right? He was angry. He was angry. 
at what he saw that the wages of sin had done to this family, the grief and the brokenness that it had produced, and he hated it. He despised it. Christ hates sin, and he hates death. But even more, it tells us that Jesus wept. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, okay? I want you to think about that for a moment. Did Christ know that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Did he? That's not a trick question. Did Jesus know that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Yeah, of course he did. That's why he went there. That's why he went to Bethany. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead, give him life again. But notice that that does not make him untouched by the pain of Mary and Martha, does it? It's not like Jesus is, well, I know how this is going to end in just a moment. And therefore, that caused him to be robotically stoic and sterile in the moment. And he weeps with them. He cries with them. Salty tears ran down the face of the God-man. He enters into their pain. He sympathizes with their hurt. And he bears their burden with them. And ultimately, he relieved it, didn't he? Our Lord is not stoic. In fact, the ultimate evidence of Jesus sharing in our sorrow and suffering was His determination to come and save us in our wretched and our miserable state, wasn't it? Wasn't it? He had compassion upon us in our misery. Our self-imposed misery. When we were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, He came down from the glories of heaven and bore our infirmities. And He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Amen. In the words of David, Psalm 40, He drew us up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and He set our feet upon a rock, and He made our steps secure. He put a new song in our mouths, a song of praise to our God. Christ entered our weeping so that He might give us rejoicing. Our Lord was not untouched by our needs. He's not indifferent or uninvested in our rejoicing and our weeping. And therefore then, neither can we be toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have been recipients of a great grace. And being a recipient of grace, great grace demands that you be what? A giver of it too. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Because to obey this command from the heart is the source of great blessing and benefit. I want you to think about this with me for a moment, right? When we fulfill this command from the heart, you know what it does? It brings with it a deepening strength and cohesion, right? To our bond with one another in Christ, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It knits our hearts to one another and it knits us even more to Christ. Doesn't it? Again, like I said earlier, it cements us together in a way that is beyond full description. Beloved, fulfilling this command creates an atmosphere in a church of warmth and of, and of intimacy 
and, and of caring and mutual upbuilding and mutual support and encouragement where joy is heightened and where pain is lessened, right? A family that is wrought by the power of God's grace to which we are glad and grateful to belong, right? I won't, I won't out you. You are in this congregation and you know who you are. But you will remember that when you first came here, it was probably like a couple of weeks when we, you'd been here for like a couple of weeks and you were like, this is, I think these are your exact words. Man, this church is different. Everybody's all up in your junk. And I was like, yeah, isn't it cool? Right? That kind of investment in one another. Look, that, that's not commonplace in this world, is it? Is it? But it ought to be commonplace here, shouldn't it? Moreover, when we take this command seriously, think about it. Every member of, in the body gets cared for, right? Every member in the body gets cared for. Because nobody's treated as a stranger. When we're, when we're actively rejoicing with one another and weeping with one another and everything in between, nobody gets left out. Because here's the deal. There are times when we need ministry and there are times when we need to minister, right? Right? And that's why God created the community of the king that he calls the church. God could have just dealt with us individually, but he doesn't. He doesn't, does he? God could have just dealt with us as, as individuals in isolation from one another and separated from the family of God. That's not how God works. And why not? Well, because he put us together with other believers that we might give and receive ministry and that we might be matured in the image of Jesus Christ and sanctification takes place in community. That's where it takes place. Oh no, there are some pretty holy, pious guys that have been hermits. Name one. Well, I mean, they must exist somewhere. Yeah, name one. Show me that pattern in Scripture. I mean, it seems kind of odd that God would give us a bunch of one another commands if He didn't expect us to be around, I don't know, one another, right? God doesn't deal with us in isolation. Community like this, where we weep with one another and rejoice with one another, it sustains us in a dark world and it creates for the people of God a refuge from a cold and an indifferent and an uncaring world and it fills that deep need for love and acceptance and belonging in every human soul. Doesn't it? Go like this. As Christ reached out to us in love and mercy... To care for us so we do the same thing with others. Furthermore, you know what else these, co- these commands do? They exalt Christ's presence with His people. Don't they? Let me explain what I mean by that. It's only the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that transforms sinners like us and enables us to truly rejoice and weep with one another and to love each other like we do. True or false? True, right? To care for each other as we ought to. Here's the reality in our world. There are limits... There are always limits to how far fallen men and women will go with one another. How far they'll go for the sake of the other. There's always limits in the world. But not in the family of God. Not in the family of God. At our best and at our most faithful, we love each other with the same love that with which Christ loved us. True? And that love has no bounds, it has no ends, and it has its source in the heart of Almighty God. Amen? And that's why there's nothing that's more beautiful in the earth 
then a church, the children of God, joined together in unity, laying down our lives for one another, our hearts melted together and united to honor Christ and live for His glory. How much like Christ is the one who feels the sorrows and the joys of others as his own? And then last, obeying this command to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Beloved, it is a powerful evangelistic tool. You know why? Because it gives credibility to the power of the gospel to reconcile the holy God to sinners and to reconcile sinners to one another. It puts on display in the fallen world the true and faithful love among the people of God because it's so different from the rest of the world. It's part of the answer to Christ's prayer in John 17 when He prayed that they may all be one just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. The glory that You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and You in Me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that You sent Me and loved them, even as You loved Me. In fact, Charles Simeon says of this command, he says, when these amiable, these kind, these loving feelings are displayed in full force and activity, the cause of Christ is greatly promoted. The beauty and the excellency of Christianity is seen. Men cannot, or rather will not, judge of it from its principles. They many times just won't listen to arguments from Scripture, right? But they cannot help judging it from the effects which they behold. So when persons behold Christians participating with one another freely in their joys and in their sorrows, they're constrained to say, behold how these Christians love one another. Yes, and not one another only, but all around them. Strangers and enemies, as well as friends. Christianity speaks to them here in a language which they cannot but understand and feel. Beloved, He's right. He's right. There's only one way to have this true fellowship. It's through the power of the Gospel. It's through us being a company of the born again, justified in Christ, justified unto sanctification in Christ, and by us seeing the church as it really is, as the family of God. My family. When you see, when you understand in that way, in those terms, and that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Beloved, rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. And thereby fulfill the divine law and the commands of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's remarkable that 
such a seemingly simple command can really open up a world of truth and consideration to our eyes. Just thinking about the implications of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep and what that must mean for us before we can even do it. What it must mean for us in order to continue to do so. The death of self. The laying down of self in our selfish lives and our sense that we belong to ourselves when we don't. Father, I pray that You would use the words that have been spoken this morning to do whatever it is that You desire to do in the hearts of everybody who are here listening. Father, there may be some in this room, I know, that do not know Christ and have never really surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, are still trying perhaps to earn their um, righteousness with You and earn salvation with You and earn, with, earn merit with You. And, and Father, it's discouraging and it's tiring and it's impossible. And so I pray, Lord God, that for those who are not saved in this room, that You would open their eyes to the truth of the Gospel. The truth of the Gospel that's been explained several times Father, in this sermon, I pray that they would see the truth, that they are sinners in desperate need of salvation from a holy God from whom they are, you know, estranged, that they are under the condemnation and the wrath of God, and that you alone, Lord God, have done what is necessary in order to bring them to you, to make them righteous in your eyes, to declare them not guilty, to give them eternal life. And that's by sending Christ to live the life they couldn't live and die the death that they deserve and rise again on the third day. And that Father's salvation comes through faith and submission to Christ as Savior and Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. That perhaps, you know, some of them, Lord God, have found difficulty in just opening their hearts up to one another. Especially in light, Lord God, of the stuff that we've been through as a church. I pray that, Father, whatever excuse we may have, that they would just be, they would evaporate in light of the kindness and the mercy of Christ. Father, perhaps there are some here who need to repent of the way that they have responded to those in rejoicing or in weeping because they haven't done it right. And the descriptions of the worldly response sound much more like their own hearts than that of Christ. I pray, Lord God, you bring them to repentance this morning. But just use this time in whatever way you wish to prepare our hearts to share in the Lord's Supper and to commemorate the fact that you did not leave us in our misery, but you pursued us and you saved us at a great cost to yourself. You did not hold anything back but freely gave Yourself up that we might live. Lord, I pray, help us and bless us now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.